Welcome to the G3 Podcast, a weekly podcast focused on the Christian life where we examine doctrinal and cultural issues that impact God's church. My name is Josh Bice, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jeremy Voilo. Jeremy, how are things over in Los Angeles? Doing great, brother. How's the ATL? Wonderful. Yes, we had a great week this week. I was digging into Romans 9 as I've been preaching through Romans, and we're currently in the text where uh, Paul is dealing with the issue of election, and he's using the analogy of the potter and the clay. So it was a really good week for us. Oh, that's good. Yeah, my wife and I and little daughter, we were actually in East Texas for a wedding that I was officiating. And so a lot of travel this weekend, um, but it's it was a really sweet occasion. Two, two really dear friends of ours got married and it was an honor to be there, honor to officiate. Glad to be back in LA though. As we think about today being Reformation Day, as we look back at a historic moment, 502 years ago today, an Augustinian monk walked down to the castle church door in Wittenberg and nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in protest of the indulgences, the sale of indulgences. And as we think about the spark of the Reformation, we think about the importance of the Bible as it pertains to the Reformation. So as you look back over history and think about your current place in history, how do you put an emphasis upon the sufficiency of the Bible in your own personal life and in the discipleship of your home? Yeah, it's just recognizing, isn't it, that the Bible is central to everything, and it's the foundation upon which the rest of life is built. Uh, it is, it's the well spring of life from which uh, all of human flourishing flows. And uh, so just recognizing that whether it's parenting, whether it's uh, being a husband or a son, a friend, a pastor, a minister, all of life is directly affected and built upon the foundation of scripture. I remember uh, growing up, my father would often say the phrase, well, the Bible says and it, it was in so many situations and circumstances, and I don't remember all, the, all of the conversations, but I just remember that phrase. My father was always going back to, well, the Bible says, and then he would uh, draw wisdom from it. And what impacted me was really that he knew the Bible that well. I remember thinking, I want to know the Bible like that. But, but secondly, that all of life is built upon the foundation of God's truth. Mm, very good point. And as we think about that very subject, you know, that statement, the Bible says, I mean, it has become known as, you know, sort of, you know, a common thing among preachers uh, during the, the Billy Graham era. You would hear him often say the Bible says with authority. But yet, as we think about within evangelicalism today, there's an awful lot of sort of distaste for that sort of, you know, authority, that sort of idea of saying that the Bible says something. In other words, we should just say that maybe that Paul says, or maybe that James writes, but not necessarily the Bible says. And so I don't know about you, but I think we need a heavy emphasis on what the Bible actually does say. Oh, absolutely, brother. I mean, we we kind of look at Scripture as having elements of truth, and we look at Paul and James and the apostles as these wise men who walked with Christ, and so they've got some true things to say, and we can we can reference it when in need. What we've forgotten, sadly, in much of evangelicalism is that it's not that the Bible contains truth. 
it's that the Bible is truth. God's word is the definition of what is true. It's not a reference guide for times of trouble merely. It is the basis of all truth from which we see all of life. What better person to have on the show today to talk about the Bible, the authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of God's Word on Reformation Day than Dr. Michael Kruger. He is the president and Samuel C. Patterson professor of New Testament and early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Dr. Kruger, welcome to the show today. Well, thanks, guys. Great to be with you. As we think about the importance of the Bible, as we think about uh, this being Reformation Day, we would like to talk with you about the Bible itself. And and as we do so, I just want to sort of go back to 2014. And I was actually um, just across the, camp, uh, the, the street from our church campus. I had gone over to, to pick up an, an item or two before I went home, and I saw the front cover of this Newsweek magazine that uh, just sort of caught my attention about the Bible. So I picked it up and, and looked at it. I thought maybe I should just take it and read it. So I purchased that, that magazine. And when I uh, arrived at my office the following day, I read these words by Kurt Eichenwald. He said, quote, No television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician, neither has the Pope, neither have I, and neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation, a translation of translations, of translations, of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on hundreds of times, end quote. Now, as we hear those words from Eichenwald, as we think about, you know, that sort of thing has been handed down from skeptic to skeptic, from atheist to atheist, and it's found its way into classrooms on the university you know, setting, and, and there are loads of students who are hearing that sort of thing, and it's calling into question the reliability of the Bible. So what would you say to someone who's struggling with you know, whether or not the Bible is actually true on the basis of that sort of thing that we hear from Kurt Eichenwald. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a classic example. I remember very well um, seeing that uh, newspaper or Newsweek article myself. In fact, I, I remember finding it at right around Christmas Eve of that year and writing a response uh, to it online. And yeah, Eichenwald makes some grandiose claims in that article, claims that people hear all the time, repeated on the internet and beyond, that we don't have access to the Word of God because it's been badly transmitted. Actually, Eichenwald made very uh, a number of errors even in the statement you read. He, he says we have bad translations. What I think he means to say is we have bad copies uh, or bad transmission there, uh, but that that's not true. Actually, the New Testament is one of the best attested books, for example, we have in the ancient world. We have thousands of copies of the book. We can compare them to one another. We can see how the scribes did over time. We can notice if there's been any scribal changes, and we can reliably reconstruct the original text. So it sounds good on paper, and it makes for good rhetoric, but at the end of the day, we have very good reasons to trust the transmission of our New Testaments. Yeah, and, and you make a very good point, but the problem is when you when you hear people that, that make statements like that, and then you have maybe a student that's really unaware of the, the history of the biblical canon, it can cause for controversy. So here was another question. Suppose someone, you know, is is struggling with the authenticity of the Bible and the authority of Scripture and whether or not the Bible can actually be trustworthy, and they start thinking about, well, why is it that 
say my Catholic friend here has more books in their Bible than we do. Uh, we, we look to the biblical canon as 66 authoritative books, and yet some say we should have more than 66. So why not the Apocrypha, and, and why do we only have 66 books? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, this is one of the, the starting points for people is, wait a second, it sounds like we have different canons here. Um, one of the things I point out to them is that uh, the Apocrypha is 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 a, a reference to intertestamental books that were originally not in our Old Testaments and were added much later by the Roman Catholic Church, actually officially at the Council of Trent in the 16th century. And what I encourage people to do is to ask the question differently and, and to ask the question, what was the Bible, what was the Old Testament that was being used by Jesus and the original apostles? And we can we can suss that out pretty pretty easily by looking at the books that were quoted. And here's, here's an interesting sort of fact for people. There, there's not a single instance of an Old Testament book being quoted as scripture uh, in the New Testament writings that does not appear in our current uh, 39-book Old Testament, um, and the Old Testament as we currently have it in the Protestant church. And that's, that's really stunning. If the canon was in disarray, if the Old Testament canon was out of sorts in the time of Jesus, we would expect there to be some evidence that it was under dispute. Some, someone would quote a book of scripture that wasn't in our current Old Testaments or something of this nature, but it's remarkably consistent. In fact, Jesus held his audience accountable for what the Old Testament scriptures said, and the only way he could do that is if there was some agreement on what the Old Testament scriptures were. So, Dr. Kruger, we've we've got the 66 books, but there could be another objection. Um, we don't have an original autograph or an original copy. So the question that's often been asked is, how do we know the Bible is trustworthy that we have today? Yeah, there, there's, a fascin there's a fascination out there with the original autographs that people talk about. And um, this is, um, I think, a, a misnomer because what they really do is they treat the autographs as a physical object, as if we don't have the physical first draft of, say, Romans, we can't know what Romans said. But that's not necessarily the way to look at it. We can have the original text of Romans, even if we don't have the original physical copy, if that text is preserved in other copies. In other words, the, the, the original text is not a physical object. The original text can be preserved across manuscripts, and it can be preserved in other ways. Um, and so the question just goes back again, whether we have enough reliable copies to know what the original said. Um, and we very much do. In fact, if we don't know what uh, the New Testament said uh, uh, in, in its original sense, then we don't have a way of knowing what any ancient document said. If we, if we reject the New Testament, we have to reject every document in all of ancient history. And, and I don't know many people who are prepared to do that. One question, Dr. Kruger, that I wanted to follow up about was it made the headlines back in the 40s. And it's often discussed today, uh, whether on college campuses or in the coffee shops or whenever the Bible's brought up, about the scrolls that the Bedouin shepherd discovered in the 1940s, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I'm just curious, uh, what is the import of the Dead Sea Scrolls in this whole discussion on the reliability of Scripture? Yeah, uh, great question. I mean, the Dead Sea Scrolls are probably one of the greatest archaeological discoveries in the modern world. Um, discovered by a, believe it or not, discovered by a shepherd looking for lost sheep, if you can imagine such a thing, uh, in 1948, um, literally looking for lost sheep in the caves around the northwest corner of the Dead Sea, throwing stones into caves, hoping to scare out the sheep who would like to hide there because it's cooler. Um, one of the stones hits a, a earthenware jar, makes a, a crashing sound. The, the, the shepherd explores the, the noise and discovers uh, ancient leather scrolls. And turns out, They've been sitting there for approximately 2,000 years. What the Dead Sea Scrolls contain 
for our purposes in this discussion primarily are, are copies of the Old Testament. Uh, we have a representative fragment of every book of the Old Testament except for Esther located in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so we have copies of the Old Testament that predate Jesus in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, that may not sound like much, depending on who, who's listening, but that's a remarkable thing, because up to that point, we just didn't have that uh, copies that were that old. And so it takes us further and deeper into the state of the Old Testament text than we ever were able to go before. Um, and generally speaking, the news is encouraging. Uh, you take the Isaiah Scroll, for example, found there in Qumran, and it is remarkably similar and pr pretty much in all, for all intents and purposes identical to our modern Isaiah. Um, and it just shows that there's remarkable fidelity of copying over long periods of time. As a quick follow-up regarding the scrolls, um, can you give us a comparison for how remarkable it is that we have the copies we do, the consistency we do, maybe as it compares to other historical literature that, that we count reliable? Yeah, I mean, it's not a bad thing to ask how the New Testament stacks up, or even the Old Testament for that matter, stacks up to other books of the same age. Um, you know, when you take the New Testament books, for example, it really isn't a class by itself when you consider both the quantity of manuscripts we have and the date of them. For, for documents around that same time period of the first century, um, they're really hard to come by. Um, we'd be happy to have five or 10 copies of something uh, from that time period. And most of the time when we have copies of something from that time period, there's a fairly big gap between the publication of the document and our earliest copy. It wouldn't even be unusual to have 800, 900 year gap. Uh, but when it comes to the New Testament, we fare much better. Uh, we have not only thousands of copies uh, of the New Testament, but we have thousands of copies of the New Testament. And, and then we have some of those that even date as early as the second century and third century, right up uh, uh, alongside the first century itself. And that's just stunning on a historical level. There's really no other document like it. And so we can go further back um, with, with much more confidence than we can for any other document of the same age. Mm, very good. Dr. Kruger, as we think about the importance of the Bible, and as we think about the importance of the Bible in the life of the local church, talk to us just a moment about why it is that we actually need the Bible in order to worship God properly. Well, yeah, in your introductory comments there, you made a, a reference to the fact that, that there's some in our modern day that sort of want to get the Bible out of the worship service. Um, they suggest that the Bible is, is a hindrance, it's, an, it's a stumbling block, it's a problem, and that if people really want to hear from, from uh, God, they need to, to not know uh, that it's coming from the Bible. And so let's just talk about it in other ways. I, I profoundly disagree, and I think that the Scriptures themselves have a different, different view of what their purpose is. Uh, you just look at a passage like Hebrews 12 and 13, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, uh, piercing even into the human heart. Uh, one of the reasons that you need the Word of God in worship is because it's the divinely appointed instrument by which uh, human hearts are are reached. Um, one might say, arguably, that the human heart is the hard, hardest substance on the planet. Um, who could ever penetrate it? Who could ever break into it? Who could ever reach it? But God has given us His Word, powered by the Holy Spirit, to do just that thing. And so we need God's Word in worship because it's the one thing, uh, it's the main thing that can penetrate the human heart and bring real uh, change into the human life. And so God speaks powerfully through his word. And if God's people are going to hear from his word, it has to be preached and taught in worship. Mm, that's a really good point. But uh, as you make that statement that God speaks to us through his word, there are some people today that would 
like speak back to us and say, well, you don't, you, you guys don't actually believe that God still speaks today. So how would you respond to a critique like that? Well, I mean, obviously in times past, God spoke in lots of ways, uh, spoke to the prophets and spoke to the apostles. Um, but I think we again have good internal indications in scripture itself that the final deposit of his revelation is kept in his written word. And so we don't believe now that there's an ongoing apostolic or prophetic office where God still audibly speaks to people that primarily now he speaks through his written word. And that's the primary place we ought to go to receive it. Um, so yeah, there's always a, a temptation in the human heart to look to other places to get God's word. Uh, we look to our own emotions. We look to uh, writing in the sky or a dream or some other emotional experience. But we always want to bring back people to the scriptures itself. And it's just important to realize that when Jesus was in trials and tribulations, it's where he turned to, to, to the scriptures. He quoted the scriptures to the devil during his temptations in the wilderness. It was the scriptures that guided him and, and uh, that he relied upon. And so it's important that uh, we sort of follow suit and always look back to the written word as our, as our ultimate foundation. We will be right back with more from Dr. Kruger as we talk about the sufficiency of scripture and the reliability of God's word. Stay with us. So we worship the God who is holy. We worship the God who is righteous. We worship the God who pours out his wrath. And at the same time, we bow ourselves in humble adoration because we deserve that wrath too. But he saves us in spite of that. The Church of Jesus is redeemed and called to worship God. Therefore, worship matters. This January, we will gather for a very important conference on worship in which we will address important questions like, is God concerned with how we worship Him? As we consider the different ways in which we worship God, from the public reading of Scripture, prayer, the preaching of God's Word, the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, is anything optional? Are we free to rearrange, reinvent, or repackage worship to accommodate cultural trends or the preferences of people? We must not overlook the privilege of worship. Not only does God receive our worship, but as a result, we are changed and transformed as we engage in the worship of our triune God. Look at this. You will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Do you see this? Well, I don't want any of that doctrine stuff. Well, then you, you have to go to hell. What we believe will determine our eternal destiny, the doctrine, the teaching that we hold to. Why do we study doctrine? Our life depends upon it. Join us this January as we will enjoy fellowship, spiritual growth, and the worship of God at the 2020 G3 Conference. For information and reservations, visit g3conference.com. Dr. Kruger, as we have the Reformation on our minds today and are thinking about that uh, event 500-some years ago, uh, one of the leading reformers was a man by the name of William Tyndale, who's perhaps probably best known for his work of translating the Bible 
into English from the Greek. Uh, how important was the work of Tyndale in the translation as well as the printing of that first Bible uh, from the Greek text into the English common language? Um, you know, Tyndale's work was foundational for the work of the Reformation because it got the Bible into the hands of the layman. And this has always been a fundamental Protestant conviction uh, that the Bible is not just for the clergy, it's not just for the church leaders, it's for the people. They need to know it, read it, and understand it. Um, Tyndall took a great risk um, in doing that. Uh, in fact, he eventually got uh, uh, it all caught up to him. He was sort of a fugitive on the run for a long time, eventually was martyred um, for, his, for his work on translating the Bible into English. Um, and was a great example of someone who's willing to take a stand for the Word of God. But the fundamental conviction behind it all was, is that change happens when people hear the Word of God. Um, and the more people who get the Word of God in their hands and the language they know, uh, the more they're going to be impacted by it. And it's really that, that that made the Reformation happen. The Reformation was not just a, a, a political movement or a, a cultural movement. It was ultimately a, a movement that was a response to what people were reading and hearing in God's Word. Yeah, that's a really good point. And as we think about the work of Tyndale, and then we think about uh, as the Reformation would march forward, we would we would eventually see another Bible, the 1560 Geneva Bible. So why is that Bible of such great importance as we think about church history, as we think about the Reformation itself? Well, the Geneva Bible uh, really uh, functioned as a, one of the key texts for the Reformers. Um, I Most of my work is in sort of the original manuscripts in the first century and second century, so not so much in Reformation-era Bibles. But um, uh, again, you know, you've got Calvin and, and the Reformers leaning on, a, on, a, on an English translation that could be promulgated throughout the the European continent and beyond that, that, that sort of was the, was the match that lit uh, a revival. Um, and I think it just reminds us once again, that revivals aren't built on uh, manufactured emotion. They are not built on just let's pop up a tent and have a revival. Revivals are built ultimately if they're real on, on people receiving and hearing uh, God's word. And so this is why we have Bible translators, of course, now all over the world, hoping to get people's uh, the Bible in the people's languages, so they can also hear it for themselves. Yeah. As we think about the the our mark in history, our place in history, 502 years ago today, again, looking back to the Reformation historical moment with Luther there in Wittenberg. But as we think about how much access that we have to the Bible today, what advice would you give to a Christian who may not really understand the significance of what happened 500 years ago and the Bible app that they actually have on their iPhone, for instance, uh, what sort of uh, encouragement would you give to them to think earnestly about the access that we enjoy today? Yeah, I know it's hard for people to step out of their cultural moment and into other times, but I would I would start by reminding people that that they live in an un unprecedented era of access. Um, even within the last hundred years, it's unprecedented in terms of the digital access, but back to the Reformation or pre-Reformation times, the average person just did not have access to or own their own private Bible in a way they could read it. And um, it is it is um, remarkable to think that the, that the Reformation is tied to and in, 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 in parallel with that Bible reaching the masses. And so many people gave their lives for that. Um, it wasn't just that they got some law passed, they, they, blood was shed so that people could have the Bible in their hands. And so what do you do as a result of that? Well, you realize how central and important it is in the Christian life. And so, you know, I would encourage people to 
take seriously their access in such a way that they take advantage of it. That includes certainly personal and private devotional reading in Scripture and personal study, but more than anything, find a good church that preaches the Word and sit under the preaching of the Bible uh, as the primary way that you absorb uh, what God has to say to you there. Yeah, that's a very good word. Well, it's been a privilege to have this conversation with you today, Dr. Kruger. Thank you for your hard work. And uh, again, it's just a, a wonderful treat for us to have you on the show today. Thanks, guys. Great to be with you. Happy Reformation Day. All right. Same to you. And if you're interested in joining us for the G3 conference this January on worship, we would invite you to join us. You can find out more information at g3conference.com. We hope to see you this January as we gather for a conference on worship. May God bless. Have a wonderful rest of your day as we think about the historic mark, as we think about what Reformation and Reformation Day actually represents. May God bless. 